Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. This is my interview with John Wee, who's the uh, co-founder of Center Stage. I've kind of dabbled with that card uh, identification app. It's uh, very simple to use. Uh, it's free, hard to beat. I met him at the Mint Collective, and then we spent an hour on the phone. This is about 12 minutes of it, because we talked about stuff that's was not for sharing, because he's got some great ideas, and we enjoyed batting those around. Um, Thanks, sponsors, Top Spinini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Hugs and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. I'm really enjoying interviewing and uh, getting to know some of these entrepreneurs and technologists coming into our space. They have skills and uh, passion. Thanks, John, we, for sharing your story. We, we had a wide range of conversation. I wouldn't say this is the best 12 minutes, but it's 12 minutes that I think is uh, appropriate for sharing in the context of my podcast. So. Thanks, everybody. And here is uh, John Wee. I'm a first-time entrepreneur. I was in the corporate world for you know over a decade. The definition of an entrepreneur, I think, is some, when you get this idea and you have to do it. Yep. You yeah, have yeah, to yeah. do it. And so that makes you an instant entrepreneur. But that's the main thing in my life I just had to do. I looked around to see if anybody else was going to do it. No. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, I'll do it. And then it was a wild ride. And like you, I did not monetize it. I had three years of giving it away for free and built up a reputation, credibility, and all that. Then when I released my first book, it was successful because I already had customers. They just were non-paying customers. <laughs> they enjoyed my work. And when somebody said, oh, are you going to pay for it now? They said, surely. Yeah. So you may be in that same situation. Yeah, for sure. Hopefully, this is going to be a very uh, profitable venture for you. I didn't take a salary for a couple of years, even mm. after I started the magazine company, which became my main gig. Although I was doing a lot of expert witnessing and consulting on the sides, I wasn't going to starve, but I was burning my candle at both ends. I love it when people are not dreamers, they're doers, and you've figured out a way to solve a problem. There is a problem. There is a pain point there. Eventually, we'd see ourselves white labeling the usage of our technology as an ingestion mechanism for all the companies in the space and also having that whole consumer product. Yeah, um, to it might, build be, off. might be hard to be Switzerland, though, in the coming environment. I don't know, John. Back in the day, it's never been a monopoly. It's always been some kind of a duopoly or some oligopoly, whatever. There's situations where there's going to be some big players. And right. I always thought I wanted to be accessible to everybody. But in this world now, I, I don't know. But that's a noble way to think of it. And I think it's the correct way to think of it now. And it's in their best interest, all these other potential suitors to allow you to blossom and flourish because you're going to help grow the pie bigger, making it easier for people to hobby the way they want to. Yeah, definitely appreciate that. And that's definitely the goal for us, just to, to grow the hobby, make everything easier, make everyone returning back to collecting after such a long hiatus, a lot easier to transition into. I think I'm concerned about what you just mentioned, the power players in the industry with all this kind of institutional money with fanatics coming in and collectors just acquiring everything inside. And now Beckett getting into acquiring those couple of technology companies. We've been a tech acquisition target for over a year now from other companies as well. And we've just stonewalled them a little bit told them that we'd like to you know, partner with them and, and find a way to license our technology. People usually balk at that because they understand that we can piggyback off of the partnership more than they can benefit from us, right? The goal of the entrepreneur is you're either going to make a lot of money and just own this forever, or you're going to sell either way. If you're going to monetize it eventually, which you will, then that it needs to be a fair return for what you've done. You don't want to sell 
when you're not in a position of strength. You have a lot of promise and sizzle. If you get really rolling, you're not in the position of strength right now that you could be in a year. And for sure, a lot of companies are doing a full-fledged solution where it's a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none type of deal. They have a whole bunch of features that they're not good at any specific one thing in the interest of getting acquired. For us, we've been just trying to refine this computer vision and machine learning aspect to cater to this one need customers have. Just to affirm you there that I think these catch-all kind of entrepreneurs are entrepreneur first. They're trying to catch a wave. And if they're a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and unless the, the person himself or herself is really outstanding, that wouldn't be what I'd be looking to acquire. I'd be looking to somebody that's, that's solved a problem, not has a Band-Aid on a bunch of little things that might make it slightly better. Yeah. So keep, keep doing what you're doing. I appreciate that. If you don't want me asking questions in terms of how Beckett generally operated in the past, and maybe if you have insight into how it is now, if you have not necessarily inside information, but like advertising was a, a big revenue part, right? What Was that? No. Uh, it wasn't? Like in, in terms of the magazine, like the print ads, was that like, did no. you have a sales team? Oh, no, it wasn't. Okay. No, we, we, we've launched, look at those first issues, first issues, they were devoid of advertising. It was a oh, big right. deal when we even took any ads, even classified ads. I and see. We, we built our eyeballs to where we had so many eyeballs and so many monthly users but we had to ease into the ads. It was a different environment 38 years ago. The, the, the dealers that were selling our copies, the wholesalers, the consigners, mm. they didn't want other dealers' ads in there. For the longest time, we didn't have it. I had been one of those guys. I wasn't going to stab them in the back. So we eased into it. They were more business card ads, announcements, show ads, card company, upcoming products, things like that. So we left money on the table advertising, but we picked it up by maximizing our paid circulation. Oh, I see. And the loyalty of our inner circle of our quote unquote distributors. So it's who is your customer? And we really felt like in the early days, it was dealers first, pretty much. If the dealers hated you, they were going to talk you down. If dealers said, hey, this really works, it's a good price guy, it's a good magazine. And we rode that. There's a book, Customers Come Second, where you treat your employees the best. And, and, and we did some of that too. And the dealers were like our sales reps, part of the team. Then collectors, we didn't disrespect them. It's just that we wanted to make sure the dealers were getting the copies at least as fast as the individual collector did. So they weren't at a disadvantage. And same thing with ads. So we were slow to take ads. And I had all kinds of consultants saying, you're an idiot. You, you've got to take ads. You're leaving money on the table. You've got a million copies of this thing going out. And you need to hire an ad sales director, in, put offices in New York and Chicago and L.A., and we tried that to some degree at some point, but it, most of the advertising was indigenous anyway. And so we really didn't need a New York office to try to get Gatorade to advertise in a magazine that was really about baseball cards. The indigenous advertising is way bigger than it was then. We didn't really do category exclusives or anything like that, but people by first mover advantage would stake something out. But I'm reminded of what Sabre, the American Airlines uh, reservation system, it was owned by American Airlines. And they basically wasn't necessarily advertising as much as the placement of the Sabre results that came back mm. were American first. American mm. Airlines was first among equals, if that's even a thing. 
So you would have that potential. Mm -hmm. Now, when I started my podcast, I made a list of some advertisers and intentionally had two from each category, two card shops. I had two auction houses. I had all three card companies that were the major ones. And then ComC and Beckett Media, obviously. So I don't have to tout one auction house. I can tout two of them and say they run the gamut. They're, they're spread out from one end of the market to the other. But there's other ways to be number one besides sales and, and market share. I always wanted to be an influencer. I want to make the pie bigger. And it sounds like you want to do that. So keeping your unbiased situation is probably good for a while. Yeah. I think a lot of institutional investors want to see a monetization strategy that's already bringing something to fruition. So, Well, they do, but they don't. There's different windows. I think we would like to have advertising that is relevant to the collector. So PSA or Beckett, if they wanted to advertise, if Golden Heritage. No, eventually, I'm saying something different than that. I'm saying okay. you don't allow PSA in unless B BGS is in too. All right, exactly. Like we're not trying to like an SGC one, and, right? and CSG and it's volume based or whatever, but they know that they can't buy you. That's the statement you'd be making. Otherwise, they're going to say, oh, that's a PSA thing. I definitely don't want to put all our like, eggs in one basket. We want to cater to the entire market. You mentioned local shows too, opportunities for in person kind of promotion. We definitely want to have a presence because I think people sometimes need to see the technology working in, in person to see how it differentiates from the other technology platforms out there. If we just have uh, people on site. That's not what we did. We weren't stealth marketing, but we let others market for us. The growth of our company was other people touting us, which is the best form. We weren't paying them. So I'm just thinking if there's a way for you to gamify what you're doing, mm -hmm. and then you make sure that these influencers with a capital I, you don't even have to pay them. They just have to be aware that there's an opportunity for them to get in on the ground floor of something that's not multi-level marketing, but some kind of a gamification mm -hmm. that their intensity allows them to really do well with this app, not just to promote it, that somehow it's in their best interest mm -hmm. to get more people. It depends on how you want to monetize it. I think you're going to have people at shows that are slapping their phone down on a card and hey, what'd you just do? You didn't have to type anything in. Yeah, that, that's the best feeling. And we've seen that kind of happen like without any encouragement. And but if you set up at shows, then it isn't stealth anymore. It isn't this mm. secret. So the reason our, our app works in a really crowded show, like at the National, when you can barely ever get a result to pop up on eBay, our app still works because it's a fraction of the amount of data. Basically, there's a left brain and a right brain aspect to the hobby and people that are adept and appealing to this less analytical side that gets people emotionally drawn in, that will always be there. And it's increased because the dollar amounts have increased. But I don't know how you could be or I could be the, the policeman for that, uh, <laughs> other than the fact that you're giving them tools that are fair tools, uh, vetted tools, dispassionate tools. You're bringing back the analytical aspect. If you're providing a good tool that brings people back to reality, then hopefully there'll be a soft landing for any of those that get overheated. Okay. Because it doesn't work. You can't just keep thinking everything's going to keep going up forever. That right. Things don't work that way. I'm just pontificating here, but that people want it to be linear. They, mm -hmm. they, that, that, that's what a, the graph is. It's drawing a line. It's not even a curve. They're drawing a straight line to data that's up and down and up and down and mostly up. Okay. Mm -hmm. But what I've seen so far, you're just listing chronologically. 
But if there was something that just indicated the volatility, the variability, there's like an average and there's probably some kind of a variance too. But just something that shows that the the next sale is not always up. 60% of the time, maybe the next sale of something is up on eBay, let's say. But even then, you can't tell if it's raw. So it's a little bit tricky for you. It was for me too. Is it anything that brings a level of caution to the buyers? A level, not extreme caution, but not caution to the wind either. Mm-hmm. If you have an app that does that, that brings some level of caution to it, then you've done the hobbyist service. Mm. But it'll be misapplied, John. People don't want to hear the voice of reason. They're excited. They're way overestimating their chances of success. That's really insightful. So you're bringing them a dose of reality without spoiling their party. You've heard of worst case scenarios. They're doing best case scenarios. People (laughs) want to be able to know what something is. Right. They have to know what it is then to know what it's worth or what it's been selling for. And then even that, to me, is not enough. I, I think you want to know a little bit more about the sales history, the velocity, all those things. The man in the 